Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and that Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders and custodians past, present and emerging and to those of the lands that this podcast reaches. As I embark on this process of speaking and listening, I'm doing so in the home of one of the longest continuous cultures of oral storytelling on the planet. Being funny is highly valued in our community. We often talk about who the funniest is and you're constantly trying to make each other laugh and then you might retell a story and then you'll add in bits and say, oh, and then what if? And then you just keep building it and building it until you've got, you know, tears rolling down your face. (laughs) So it's really important to mimic and, you know, a lot of white people can't deal with it because we'll mock them and Mm. we'll take off their, it might be the way they speak or dance. Yeah. So it's not malicious, it's actually just a way of surviving Hi, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. In each of these conversations, we attempt to break down the how and why of what we make. Together, we look at physical processes and how they relate not only to outcomes, but also connect to the unconscious or non-visual parallels and needs in our lives. Today, I'm speaking with Paola Bala. A true slashy, Paola is a visual artist, curator, writer, activist and proud Wemba Wemba Gunditjmara woman. From a long line of strong matriarchal women, Paola is one of the best storytellers I've met in ages. In this conversation, we hear so many amazing stories from Paola's early years. Everything from growing up with the only drag king mother in Achukamoama to selling her first artwork by default in the local op shop. Paola uses humour in every aspect of her work and life as a sharp and enticing tool and proudly owns what she calls her triple whammy of otherness. Paola Bala, Wemba Wemba woman, artist, curator, uh, researcher. There's a lot of things I can put at the end of your name, Paola. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Are they the general list that you usually have? Mm, Yes. There's a couple others I play with. Yeah? Yeah. But, yeah, it's funny. It's that, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I do, but you get embarrassed about all the slashies, you know. <laughs> I think pretty much everyone I've spoken to is a slashy, and yeah. that's part of this project is I'm pretty interested in slashies. <laughs> Good. Um, you're definitely one. <laughs> I'm always fa- sort of fascinated by the, the hierarchy of which way you put, you know, or, mm. I, you know, sometimes people put things first and you're like, no, I'm not first to, mm. you know, but... For you, I mean, do you identify primarily as a Wemba Wemba woman? Is that the first? Yeah, this is. that's funny because it's a conversation I have regularly with other Aboriginal and Taisha Islander women because I can't and I won't separate, you know, my cultural identity from what I do. Yeah. It's, it's my standpoint in yeah. the world. But there are times when I think about artists like Tracy Moffat and Destiny Deacon and others who, you know, pr- primarily known as artists first. So in my bio, you know, mm-hmm. being an artist is always first because mm-hmm. that's the most important thing to me, mm-hmm. um, despite all the other work I do around that. Yeah. But I'll either have in my bio, you know, that I'm a Wemba Wemba woman and also Gunditj Mara through our patriarchal okay. side, um, but our matriarchy is foremost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, other times it'll be, you know, Paola Bella's an artist and da-da-da-da and I'm also a Wemba Wemba woman. So mm. I think it's 
Yeah, I had a conversation with a friend recently and and she was talking about that she doesn't put her mob in because she wants to be respected as a practitioner first. First, yeah. Um, And then talk about culture and identity after. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky, I mean, identity is such a complex thing for Mm. everyone, but I can imagine, yeah, I mean, for for some people it's really important that that comes first. And I know that I've heard you speak a few times and Mm. I know that that comes before identifying as a feminist or a matriarchal feminist. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting with artists, I think, Mm. because often, you know, like often sometimes people introduce me as a mother first before Mm. artist and I'm like, yeah, dude, you know, (laughs) lots of people are mothers. or But it is, I guess, what you want to put. Right at the mm. start of yeah, and I'm a mother as well. Yeah, I'm a parent. We have four kids in our family, Amazing. so yeah, I've often thought about. And there's times when I've put that in my bio, depending on what the purpose of an event or mm. you know a job is. But you know, it just gives me the irks. It sort of gives me that Sonia Kruger creeps of saying, "As a mother, <laughs> yeah, exactly." And then they just want to talk about being a mother. Yeah, it's like is... their prime um, <laughs> qualification for commenting on terrorism, <laughs> being alive. Yeah, or just you know any criticism they want to make. It's like as a mother. Yeah, not it's not yeah. cool. It gives me the creeps <laughs> too. Um, but the other thing that I was pl- I was thinking about putting in your bio is an activist, and mm-hmm. I know you come from a long line of activists and successful people mm-hmm. creating amazing change. Mm-hmm. So is that something that you consider yourself as well? I do. I I think I just get a bit uncomfortable about calling myself that because mm. there are other there are activists who put themselves on the line much more than I do you know and and uh, like the young women of war the worries of the aboriginal mm. existence come to mind in and I mean I've participated in almost all of their rallies and and have been going to NADOC marches and community rallies since I was a child with my you know, yeah. family but yeah I, I guess I am I talk about utilising activism and utilising the arts as a form of activism. Yeah. So, yeah. I think you definitely do that like, yeah. really successfully and you're so um, vocal and visible and just every time I turn on the radio or like, read something, <laughs> you're in it, and I think you're, you're actually really successful at doing that. Thanks. But, yeah, and it's always hard to know what you want to identify mm. with. But you also come from, like, I guess I wanted to talk about the matriarchal thing because I think that that's a big part of how I see you and that sort of thousands of generations of um, strong women in your culture um, and how you see that informing your art practice because mm. I often hear you talking about how you how you're a, a really strong kind of warrior in sense of your culture, but you don't often talk about your art practice. Mm. So I'd love to chat to you about that. Yes. Oh, that's nice. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I feel like at times that my practice uh, sort of gets eclipsed in other work that I'm doing and mm. that's okay because there's times I feel like it's it's actually the most private part that I reserve, I guess, mm. And not not speak about as such, and you know, if I'm making work and put it out there, it's out there. But I think because I'm, I, I do work across different fields. I, I don't, yeah. it's not prioritised for me in that sense. And I think there's probably times that damages my career as a visual artist. Yeah, it's just one of those things. If mm. you are, um, yeah, if you are a slashy and you're working yeah. across various fields, your time is divided. And yeah. there's times I wish that I could sort of you know, just put a pause on everything else and just focus on my practice for a while. Yeah. But then I get drawn back into things or invited to participate in something. It's because you speak so well. You're really good at that side of things. But I feel like I, I feel like sometimes I suffer from the same thing and it's mm. like your practice is actually pretty amazing. So, oh, thank you. Yeah, and I guess I hadn't really thought about it and how it links until I heard you speak at that um, the ACCA 
talk recently um, as part of Unfinished Business, that oh, panel, yeah. mm-hmm. when you were discussing that series of work that you're making and mm-hmm. I, I've forgotten the, um, the the archetypal name of the character but maybe you could talk a little bit about that project. Oh, yeah, about Mok Mok. Yeah, Mok Mok, that's yeah, it. Yeah, she's, she's really phenomenal. She, so she's a, a creature, a spiritual woman, a matriarchal being who was written about by Annie Marge Tucker in her 1977 biography which is called If Everyone Cared. Oh, I've got to read that. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, it's it's out of print. You'd have to oh. be, you really have to search for it. Okay. Um, it was one of the very first autobiographies by an Aboriginal person wow. in the world. When was it written? In 1977. Wow. So there was, um, there's you know, there is a long line of Indigenous literature in Australia. So as yeah. early as uh, I think it's around 1856, Benelong's letter. Yeah. Um, and then um, about 19, into 1929, David Uniapen, who's mm-hmm. an inventor and, you know, features on the $50 note. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, amazing inventor. Yeah. Made like different cogs and kind of yep. and crazy practical Yep, and shearing clippers. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a prototype for helicopter blades. Oh, like, really? Incredible, absolutely yeah. incredible. But he wrote a book in 1929. Um, and then in 1964, Ujuru Walker's Book of Poetry. Mm. And then in 1977, Isani Marge's book. So they're sort of these like foundation Indigenous texts in Australia. Um, but it was her first autobiography as such. Mm. And about her life. About her life because she'd been stolen mm. as a little girl and she was an indentured servant. She was a slave for a white woman on her property, you know, and Annie Marge survived absolute horrors and abuse, you know, in that service. She was uh, trained at the Kudamundra Girls' Home right. where a lot of Aboriginal um, girls um, were taken. Up New north? South Wales. New South Wales, mm-hmm. okay. And... Um, yeah, so she survived the horrors of that and it survived it to become a phenomenal leader and, um, you know, community woman who established a range of um, services and provided voice for us. Partic- and she, her voice is really important to me because, you know, history favours male voices yeah. and that happens, that's true for our Aboriginal community as well. Yeah. So patriarchy affects us across, you know, us as women and as Aboriginal women. Yeah. And... Um, so many of the women aren't named in the movement, you know, whereas William Cooper's very known and yeah, um, Mr. Ferguson and, and Barrack and yeah. all those. But people were sort of pressed to name the Aboriginal women yeah, um, sad, activists. Yeah. And they're often really the core strength as well. That's right. Yeah. And so Annie Marge writing that book was really important and so she went on to do all this work and um, was part of all of that activism, highly respected in the community and mm-hmm. she's dearly cherished. Mm-hmm. Um, and... She lived to be, um, you know, an incredible elder. But that book's really important. The copy that I have was actually my grandmother's. Wow. And it's autographed by Annie Marsh. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. It was done in the 70s around the time that it came out. And it cool. says from, you know, Laladia with love, which is her language name. Wow. And then a few years ago, my mother gifted me that book, mm. which, you know, was just so emotional and incredible yeah. and such a gift. But I think what my mother was doing was acknowledging the work I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And she was acknowledging that she always knew that I was an artist. So when I was a child, she said that all she had to do was give me a pen and paper or <laughs> pencil and paper and I would busy myself wherever I was. Yeah. It's all I needed. And yeah, I same. Used, yeah. <laughs> and I used to, like, really go into myself. Mm. And I experienced a lot of trauma as a child, like sexual abuse mm. and family trauma, which is transgenerational for Aboriginal people. Yeah. And, you know, and sadly I wasn't the first in our family. Yeah. This is the effects of colonisation and male violence yeah. on our bodies. Yeah. And 
So going and bullying at primary school for my Aboriginality, also for having an Italian migrant father. Mm-mm. So they, you know, the kids knew that I was a black kid, but they also knew that I was a wog kid. So you get both angles. You get both. We oh. all, I also had an, a Chinese surname. I grew up as a Tang. My mother's really? father um, was the grandson of Chinese migrant wow. um, to Australia. So I grew up as Paula Tang. Oh. Or Paula Tang, as my community calls me. And so there was this, you know, um, triple whammy of (laughs) otherness. Um, And I was small and I had a big brown mole on my face and this, you know, massive curly black hair. So I didn't look like the little skinny white girls with freckles and blonde hair and all of that in Moama in New South Wales. Um, Beach. Beach. Is that Miss Moama near the beach? It's no, it's river, river oh, okay. country. It's Yorta Yorta country. Yep. It's on the Murray River. So Achuka Moama are a twin oh, town. Oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 there's a bridge between them. Yeah. And so my brother and I were the only Koori kids there. There were a couple of others from Kamaragunji Mission, but we were the only kids from our family, yeah. our relations. And so we were quite isolated and went through a lot of that. So Diving into books and diving into drawing mm. was my respite. Yeah. And the only place I felt completely safe. Yeah. And so I used to draw a lot. So that was really important to me. And it was a way of making sense of the world. Yeah. And mum had left dad um, when I was really little because of his violence. So she'd mm. come to Melbourne when she was mm-hmm. 17. She went back home up on country and she would put me on the bus to visit my dad like once a year. So I'd come to Footscray from a chair. Really? Yeah, as it, like from the age of That's about That's a long five. way. Yeah, it's three and a half hours on the bus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Imagine doing that as now. As a little kid. Oh, and you get pop yeah. on the bus, <laughs> go ticket. see your father. Wow. And did you even, did you even want to do that? Mm, sometimes. Mm. I missed him, but I, I was used to, I was raised, you know, by a single Aboriginal mother. Mm. My grandmother had become a single mother after, mm. you know, divorce. Um even apart from that, the women in our family as matriarchs are very independent. Yeah, and it's so, common though, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, the child-rearing for most of the women in our family was done by the women. Mm. I'm not saying that there weren't uncles and grandfathers in the picture. They, they were, but um, the role of men in our community wasn't as prominent. Mm. And, yeah. But you still needed to see, I mean, you still recognised you needed to see your dad. I think I had, like, I had a bond with him. Yeah. But it was... It was like going to visit a complete different country, mm. going to Footscray in the 1980s yeah, I reckon. to a big Italian Calabrese family <laughs> and cool. my grandparents speaking only Italian pretty much, tiny, tiny amount of English. Actually, my grandmama didn't speak any. My grandfather spoke a little bit. Wow. So I communicated through, like, food. Yeah, I was going to say food. Yeah. <laughs> they fattened me up every time. <laughs> but you must be thankful that you've got that, that she did make you get on the bus. and. Yeah, you know. she believed that I should know him and, mm. and the family because mm. she had great affection for them and they for her. Mm. And I, I was just this oddity because they, you know, they'd never met an Aboriginal person before my mother and grandmother. And then for their son to marry an Aboriginal, not, sorry, didn't marry, they shacked up in Carlton. <laughs> yeah where we are actually, and they ran a couple of like nightclubs together and bu- coffee bars. Wow. Which, you know, coffee, inverted commas, yeah. coffee bars, yeah. which is like a bit of slight grog and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is in the 70s. Yeah. And then they went to Footscray and they turned an old um, fruit and veggie shop into a pizza shop, which is still there wow. 44 years on. So I was a three-month-old when they opened it. Wow. So when I come down for those holidays, I would stay at the pizza shop yeah. upstairs. So it was just a other world yeah but the book getting back to the book that Mm. your mother gave you and in that book the 
Mukmuk character. Yeah. Is that where yes. it came from? Yeah. So Mukmuk. I mean, we'd always been told stories about these fearsome Aboriginal women. Yeah. And look out. Real women or like um, they're both, characters. They're spiritual and they're real. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're real to us. Like they're real to us like bunyips and like hairy beckers, yeah, which okay. are little people. So they're not Sorry, seen. what were they called? Hairy beckers? Yeah. So all <laughs> over Australia. Yeah. yeah. And they're little and yeah. they're really hairy and smelly. Like they're just. I think I have two of them at home. <laughs> <laughs> no, they live with the bush. You wouldn't see them. You wouldn't see them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all over Australia there are different versions. So Aboriginal people all over Australia have different versions. So some are taller. Wow. Some people have um, really tall beings. There's different creatures that live in in the bush and in caves in unseen places. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're seen and those stories are really valued, mm-hmm. you know. But most of the time they're just there and you know that they're there. Mm. Um, and so Mukmuk was, you know, this woman who lived in the bush. She was really wild um, she's described in a story that Annie Marjorie tells of her mm-hmm. uncle telling her when she was little. Wow. Yeah. So this is going back a long yeah. time. And that she's got big wild hair and she's ugly and she's got flappy ears and she's quite wild and she roams around by herself. So she's fearless. Wow. You know, so she's in the bush. Is by she herself. an outcast? Is that sort no, of? No, she's, she's just, just independent. Like independent. Mm. Yeah. And so what she would do is steal children. Yeah. And so if children wandered away, so it was all about lessons. Oh, yeah, staying close, close, yeah. Yeah. So if they wandered away, she would take them and then the other thing she would do is like chop up men and cook (laughs) their flesh on the fire. Wow. Mm. Wow, she was tough. Yeah, so when I read that I was like, oh, my God, she's a goddess, she's a hero, (laughs) she's a shero, I want to be her when I get old. That's awesome. Yeah, so she always sparked my imagination when I was a kid. Did you draw her as a kid? No, I think I was too afraid to. I felt mm. like I might manifest her or something. <laughs> so too scared to. But I went back to that book recently because mm. I'd read it as a child at my nan's house. And then recently when mum gave it to me, I started to go back into it and more researching it, you know, as an adult, as mm. a woman, and looking at those stories as part of my PhD research mm. and my art practice. And so I wanted to embody her a little bit with respect, not in a, a silly way, you know, or I didn't yeah. want to character caricature her she was she's very real yeah so what I did was I embodied a version of her Mm -hmm. and I wanted to bring her into Footscray into the burbs and to challenge all the notions of motherhood and also that I'd just been through a massive mental health breakdown Mm -hmm. and so coming out of that I was starting to make work again because I didn't think I ever would again Mm. I was so sick and wow, that's so, always really real work that comes out of that situation, isn't it? Like, yeah, it changed me, like that changed my very foundations, I would say. Mm. Mm. So I emulated Mook Mook and dressed as her, but I didn't want to go into the bush and do shoots. I wanted the I wanted Mook Mook in the burbs, mm. and so I wanted her to sort of, you know, imagine like what what would she be doing if she had to survive Footscray in the 2000s, you know, like I was. Mm. So I thought about her getting, you know, a chai latte at a local cafe and getting gluten-free foods and trying to keep up with all the food fads and trying to keep up with the other mums at school, you know, because our suburb, is re- getting you know rapidly gentrified. It is, yeah, and and really widefied. Yeah, you know, for a really um, diverse neighbourhood. Yeah, and so I wanted her just to sort of show up and challenge a bit of all that, mm. and not not be perfect and not sort of you know be socially acceptable, but to disrupt all of that. Mm-hmm. And so I had her brush my hair out when I had it really long, um, teased it 
you know, did everything the opposite of how you're meant to sort of present yourself, mm. you know. Mm. And I yeah. filled my hair with a halo of um, dead bush flowers wow. and uh, native flowers. And I also put in some Patterson's Curse, which yeah. is a weed. Yeah. Which looks pretty from a distance, but it's actually a weed. Yeah. So I wanted Big that. Big purple thistle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I used to see them in paddocks when we go for drives around the country, around the Goulburn yeah. Valley and. Yorta country and everything. They're introduced though, right? Like yeah. they're from Scotland or Yeah. I remember saying to mum once, oh, those purple flowers are so beautiful. And she goes, oh, they're a bloody weed. Yeah, like all us weeds. <laughs> yeah, so it's sort of like a real reality check. It's like don't get sucked in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't be seduced by colonisation, mm. you know. So, But I wanted to put some in there just as a reminder. Mm. Uh, I did my eyes in this really reddish pink I got my daughter to do it, actually. She's a makeup <laughs> artist, Rosie Kalina. She's really talented. I heard her speaking the other day, yeah. Oh, did She's, you? Yeah, I think I heard her speaking <clears throat> on Triple R. About, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She was great. Yeah, she's yeah. fantastic. Her and my son, Caitlin, are really um, influenced me a lot and they're really mm. um, inspirational. He's mm. 14 and into music. And it's amazing. And, yeah, they're really so cool. Good. You've got a they're team cool. now. They're cool people, yeah. yeah. And my stepdaughter, Holly, and stepson, Kyle, they're really amazing. They're at uni and... So good. They're all very different, very cool kids. They probably have a lot to owe you for, though. Oh, I think I've just always been an unconventional, funny kind of mum and Mm. friend to them and not, yeah, I don't think I ever meet expectations of – I try to at times. Mm. Like I can be very um, maternal Mm. and caring and I love cooking for people. So the whole thing with Mook Mook was, you know, I wanted her to do a cooking show. (laughs) (laughs) So I set my kitchen up. I didn't expect that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so I set my kitchen up like a, um, you know, all the best cooking shows with yeah. a bench and, you know, all the pans behind you and everything and yeah. tried to set up like a Nigella shoot. Awesome. Because I'm a bit, bit obsessed with Nigella. I love Nigella yeah. as well. She's so hot. She's so hot but she's so <laughs> tragic. Yeah, but she's really like food slutty. Like yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like the trips she makes to the fridge in the middle of yeah, the night. So do I. Yeah. It's just like stuffing her face. Yeah, it's really luscious. It's like, yeah. yeah it's real, it's it. quite real, but she's also quite fake. But, that, yeah. but was Mook Mook like actually a good cook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's amazing. But mm. what she did was she thought she'd shake things up a bit. So she got an emu egg to make a gluten-free <laughs> chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So she did a, a cooking shoot. She had to put her reading glasses on and she used her... Her um, Australian New Zealand cooking book oh. that was gifted to me as well. Great. So she, yeah, so she did some cooking and did a bit of a, a shoot, and yeah. then um, she got her white colonial slave husband to <laughs> do all the filming, cleaning for up, her. yeah, oh, and everything, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, did some washing and pegged some washing out, and just pretended that yeah. she's domesticated but she's not mm. yeah so it was just playing with all of that and so I just did a shoot and a couple of portraits and called a couple like I woke up like this and yeah mm. and did you um so was there a video there was a video mm-hmm. work and then series of photographs yeah and then where were they shown in what kind of context um, I had a solo show at Kingston Kingston Art Space in where is it <laughs> like, oh, past in, St Kilda yeah Kingston <laughs> the east <laughs> yeah yeah the east yeah. I'm a Westie, so I get yeah. confused. It's the East. Um, so I had a solo show there. And in the gallery, they it's an old um, 
some old sort of colonial building mm. and within it they have a safe. Mm. And so I – and there was a projector in there and a little seat, which was great. So they yeah. turned that into a space. Great. So I projected uh, the film footage in there mm. with a soundtrack of um, two country and western songs. So one was Stand By Your Man by Tammy Wynette yeah. and the other one was Crazy by Patsy Cline. <laughs> yeah. And it's music I grew up with, so yeah. my mother and grandmother in the 90s and the whole – family and I'd done a solo show about country music in 2010 mm. as well called Just Singing Up Country and Western. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sort of harked back to that a little bit. But Crazy was really about the mental health struggles and trauma and Stand By Your Man is about, you know, speaking to domestic violence. Yeah. And so I just had those two songs just on Amazing. loop. So the first time you listen to it, it's lovely. And then, you know, afterwards, you're like, yeah, sending you absolutely mental sitting in there. Um, But I wanted it, and it's in black and white, and it was um, Mook Mook um, heading off to university. So she had a red, black, and yellow graduation stole. And it's the one that I actually wore when I graduated from my um, community Bachelor of Education. And then the other thing she did was drag two um, vintage Australia Post bags full of sticks <laughs> up the road because she had other work to do. Yeah. Mm. And so she is, I mean, is she still alive in your kind of practice or is there now, is there room for new sort of archetypes or characters or stories to sort of come to life? Is that something that's going to ongo- be ongoing, those kind of female? Um, she is, but I want to check in more with um, Annie Marge's actual um granddaughters and great-granddaughters mm. before I do any more of that because I don't want it to become something that's... Yours and not theirs. Or, yeah, or yeah. not, just not, um, you know, I'm not taking the piss. Like it's... No, no. It's I wanted to bring to life, a, you know, part of that um, yeah. storytelling. Yeah. Um, so I think I'll, if, before I did anything else, I would check in and with my PhD research, I'll be, you know, speaking to other women, mm. uh, maybe about other stories and other beings. And yeah, I think I'd maybe look at another character. The other thing I did a few years before that was uh, recreating Frida Kahlo and imagining her living in Footscray as well. So I did. That's great. Yeah. Well, and, you know, because I just, like, you know, a lot of us, I really adore Frida. Yeah. Everything she stood for as an Indigenous woman but also of migrant blood and. As an artist. As an artist in that she was very uncompromising about her Indigenous identity. You know, yeah. And she took that. To New York and... um, Also in a difficult relationship. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the the things that, you know, but it's so real that, you know, nothing's perfect and expectations will kill you and all of that stuff. Yeah, and, and comparing yourself to to others or yeah. that kind of that kind of thing, yeah. competitive thing that happens. But everything, you know, about sexuality and lust and mm. love and um, desire and all this stuff that brings you undone, yeah. you know, I just love all of that. And <laughs> so I'm a bit of a Frida tragic and, yeah, so friends know to buy me Frida cushions and jewellery <laughs> and things. It's like I've got this collection, like this crazy woman at home. Um, That's great. In my nest, in my bedroom. But. Yeah, so I, I sort of wanted to imagine that, you know, one of her greatest, you know, grief, grief was mm. that she couldn't have children. Yeah. And, you know, and she painted about, you know, her, boy, yeah, her fetus that she lost. And so I took my son as a prop, <laughs> as an actor in, in the scene. And so I gave How him. How old was he then? Um, he was seven. <laughs> and I gave him a fake cigar. <laughs> It was really cool. This plastic one he got out of show or something, and it, the end of it glows red. So it really looks like a yeah. lit cigar. So I got him to smoke that while we sat on this old couch 
across the road from our house in the block of flats, someone wow. had dumped a couch. Yeah. And it was sort of had that fake, really tacky, Aztec-y kind of oh, yeah. patterns on <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, like 90s kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sort of faux, you know, yeah. um, South American. So we sat on that and I had a Mexican dancing dress on and sort of oh. did my hair free to style. But around my neck I wore a macaroni necklace that my son had made me. <laughs> awesome. You know, the ones that kids <laughs> yeah, make yeah, at kinder. Yeah. And a couple of other things. And I put feathers in my hair, including Willy Wagtail, which is my bird, mm. my totem bird. Oh, what a bird to be, a totem. Yeah. Such beautiful birds. Yeah, and really cheeky. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did a shoot there and it was about, yeah, Frieda and Footscray and I did a little series about that. But I, they were really small. I did them on um, – uh, they were sort of a mixture of drawing and collage yeah. on little canvases. Mm. Um, and I did a series of those and and my, sold almost all of them. So I don't have any left. Oh, that's kind of sad when you've got, <laughs> done a series that you love and they just yeah. all leave you. It's funny. It's yeah. like saying goodbye to children or loved ones or something. Yeah. Art's funny like that. Though, it is, but, isn't it? Yeah. But I think video is something that is interesting, I think, to look at in your practice or that performative aspect mm-hmm. because it's almost like the obvious continuation of, you know, story t- storytelling or spoken culture, which mm-hmm. um, and it's also sort of like prevails against that collectible thing because mm-hmm. it can live on so many platforms, can't it? Like, or it can even just be told. It's very difficult yeah. to tell a story of a painting. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. Well, I, I mean, with the video, it's a bit, it's really challenging for me because I'm a bit of a frustrated actress and performer. <laughs> so, I, you know, I really love the audience. I don't know. Maybe that's why I do talking gigs so much. I think I you know. it's definitely performative. Like, there's definitely <laughs> something performative well, about you. Uh, there is. I mean, I teach as well. Mm. I, I did a bit of primary teaching. I did Which a is also a performance. Yeah, and <laughs> teaching is performance. Yeah. Um, I lecture at Victoria University. You, you kind of have to, otherwise mm. you would just burn yourself out. Because you've got to protect yourself from, mm. like, you can't just give yourself over every time you have to make a, is that what you mean? Like, Well, there's that, but show. I think it's also a way of engaging students that have a level of performance because then after you need to be able to switch off and step away and be yourself as well you can't do that all the time so you've got to and you've got to be sort of like on and entertaining and the energy level goes in a way I think yeah yeah Yeah. so video challenges me because I did um, a lot of acting at high school but then when I left I lost the confidence to perform Mm. even though I wanted to Mm. so I've spent the rest of the time like getting <laughs> on stages in front of, you know, audiences. But you do, um, you know, like I've seen you speak on panels and heard you speak on the radio and mm. you never seem to falter in what you're talking about. But I guess that comes from just a pure, mm. you know, like you've got a lot to say, whereas a lot of artists <laughs> I feel get complicated mm. or they get caught up in other things because maybe mm. that that need or that drive is not as strong. Yeah, I... I wonder about that. I think there's times when I call myself a storyteller first mm. as well, as well as a visual artist, because I think for me it's always been about storytelling in yeah. different forms. Um, I have this conversation a lot with my partner where he says, you know, you're such a great communicator. There you are. Maybe that's that's what – because there's times I grapple and I, I think, oh, I don't, I don't focus enough on my visual practice. I don't focus enough as a curator. I don't – but it's all your practice. Yeah, that's it. So there's a there's a point that I decided to stop criticizing myself. Yeah. And explaining myself or being just um, doing it. 
Yeah, or or explaining to people why I do different things. Mm. And I thought, no, I'm just going to Beyonce it. Like she doesn't sit around, you know, wondering, you know, what she's going to call herself and, oh, maybe I shouldn't dance and sing. (laughs) She doesn't do that. that. Yeah. Yeah, I I feel the (laughs) same way and I think you get to a certain point where, and a lot of the women I've been speaking to have got to that point where I guess you're sort of like Mm mid-career and not quite like, you know, that established can do whatever you want, but at the same time not emerging anymore. And really mm. you're just too busy to spend time explaining yeah. what how it fits in. You've just got to do it all together mm-hmm. and have faith that I think there's a whole generation under us that are starting to kind of go, oh, wow, like that's actually a skill in itself is to do all these different things mm. and and actually help them you know, those different aspects feed into each other. And yeah. I think with your practice it's like it's it's epic. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's really, really inspiring because I, I don't think there's that many people that just completely believe in it and do it without kind of questioning it or mm. weaning off part. But I really think your art practice is super interesting. Thank and you. yeah, and like looking at people like Destiny Deacon or Tracy Moffat and sort of seeing how it fits in with that in a really new um this this generation kind of way. Like mm. taking the little bit of the humor, little bit of the sort of cinematic um, you know, but then mm. in a way that hasn't been done before. Yeah, so. the the photographic um, work is really important to me and I've mm. that's the other thing I, I was really obsessed with taking photographs of the kid. Yeah. Um, right. You know, and like like, you know, I'm 44 this year. So, you know, mm. when we were kids, to have a camera was, you know, pretty special. Mm. And it's expensive. Like it was expensive to buy film and then, you know, you know take it to the chemist and Get it wait for two weeks <laughs> to be ready and then go back. You know, so I love the immediacy of, you know, phones yeah. and, and the, the immediacy of image. But I also miss the um, patients involved and the risk mm. that half, you know, the first five you go through, they'd just be a blurry mess and mm. you just go, oh, God. Damn it, you know, you waste money. And then you get one, you're like, wow. Yeah, but this one's great. Or an accident one that you didn't think you were taking. Yeah. Yeah. So those pictures inform my practice a fair bit. Like my mother's photographic collection from the 70s on. Often dip into that for works. So you have that whole collection? Yeah, she loans it to me when I need it. Yeah. Which is really cool. So does your mum consider herself an artist as well? Or is there. Um, Yeah, she does. Mum has increasingly been making more and more work. So she paints and draws and Mm. makes all sorts of things. She makes dolls and bags and all sorts of things. She does this beautiful little, well, it's a craft kind of practice, I guess, and and painting. And she's yeah, she's really creative. She she always wrote poetry. Um, she always curated the house in a very particular way. It was yeah. really beautiful like my grandmother did. Um, she was always making things or doing something and then she was also a drag king. Yeah, I heard you yeah. mention that. Um, yeah. So go into that a bit more because that's fascinating. Mm. In Melbourne or Sydney? No, at home in Echuca. In Echuca? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like that's to do it in a country town in the 1980s mm. was just unheard of. Totally. Yeah. So our family, like a lot of Koori families, really value performance yeah. and storytelling, dressing up. So as kids, we were always told by our, <laughs> you know, my mum, my aunties, my nan, come on, your kids, make us laugh. And they yeah. would make us. <laughs> make us laugh. Yeah, constantly. <laughs> come on, your kids. Um, That's your job. Yeah, mimic so-and-so. Oh, wow. Or do a funny dance oh. or put that song on and you got to dance to it and you got to mime to it. Like, oh. That's, that reminds me, I recently saw Juki Mala for the first time, mm. the dance group. Indigenous oh, I haven't seen them. Oh, they're really amazing. Mm. And that whole thing, I watched lots of interviews afterwards, just that mimicking kind of different dance types and 
they got sort of famous because they had this Greek woman in their community mm. and she was sick and so they did a little performance for her of like a oh, kind the of. Oh, yeah, the Zorba. Oh, yeah, no, that's I've them. Seen them. Yeah. yeah, and then yeah. they got picked up and did a big stage show and they like mimic Michael Jackson and yeah. just Bollywood and just such incredible mimics but then put in kind of like local moves and, you know, there's some kangaroo bits and they're just so awesome. Yeah, they're great. But it, I didn't realise that there was that real kind of like eclectic, not showman, but sort of like, yeah, like mm-hmm. mimicky, yeah. funny, You're funny forced man. to yeah. show off, be funny. <laughs> Being funny is highly valued in our community. Yeah. We often talk about who the funniest is and you're constantly trying to make each other laugh and then you might retell a story and then you'll add in bits and say, oh, and then what if? And then you just keep building it huh. and building it until you've got, you know, tears rolling down your face. <laughs> awesome. So it's really important to mimic and, yeah. you know, a lot of white people can't deal with it because we'll mock them. And mm. we'll um, take off their, it might be the way they speak or dance. Yeah. yeah. So it's not malicious. It's actually just a way of um, of surviving and yeah. celebrating. Like a live bird. Yeah, it's just for fun. It's for yeah. fun. Like you have to laugh because we deal with so much. You yeah. Know, we're so, um, we deal with so much grief and trauma that totally. it's really important to um, value laughter and joy. Mm. So, yeah, that's part of it, you know. So it's it part was, of survival really, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. And how, I mean, with all the sort of like comedians now as well, the sort of deadly funny mm. stuff, it's just Yeah, mum so... was a part of that. Yeah, right. One of the first. Um, she was the oldest person, I think, to do it in one of the first really? rounds in Melbourne. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So in Echuca in the 80s, she would get dressed up as um, an old Italian man called Luigi. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. Have you got doc like footage of that? Oh, or? we don't. We moved house a lot and yeah. a, a lot of stuff was lost and... At one point, our house got cleaned out and um, all our stuff got dumped at the oh. Salvos oh. when we were in between moving. Someone else cleaned it out. Yeah, it was because it was we were in Aboriginal housing, it was public housing, yeah. and my mother couldn't afford to do our complete move between Chuka and Melbourne. Oh, so she left some behind. She left some stuff behind. I had gone back home for a weekend with a girlfriend and had this big night out. I was 18. Yeah. And we went to the op shop that day <laughs> to, get, to get clothes to wear out that night. Yeah. Because you know, the Chica's got one nightclub. Yeah. We're going to go to that nightclub. And usually good op shops as well. Yeah, really good op yeah. shops because no one else wants to wear the stuff that I would pull out of them. Yeah. And I looked at this the counter and I said, oh, that looks like one of my mum's dolls. She's got one of those. And then I said, oh, and that looks like her jewellery. And that looks like, oh, my God, that's my mum's. And then I looked up and oh, no. behind the um, counter on some white trellis, like garden trellis, it was so bizarre, it was so surreal, it was my mother's um, dress pinned out, fanned out, like like done up like a proper display. And then I went, oh, my God, that's my mum's stuff. Where did you get this from? And then I started to look around the op shop and it was full of our stuff. So I Did found, you just take it all back? Yeah, so I, I became hysterical and yeah. I started yelling at these old ladies in the op shop going, these are our things, what have you done? And my friends freaking out going, these are my friends' things. Weird. Mm, I, wrote, I wrote a story about it called The Garbage Bag Diaries because wow. I ended up getting everything in garbage bags. Yeah. There were eight full garbage bags. And um, I had to get the train back to Melbourne. With all the bags. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And the guy I hooked up with the night before he drove me to the station. Oh. <laughs> well, what a story. <laughs> it's really funny. At least you got it all back, though. Well, some of it was already gone. Oh. So the funny thing is that that's how I sold my first painting. Through the op shop? Yeah. <laughs> 
So my year 12 VCE <laughs> painting, my main assessment, oh. that it was a portrait of my mother and brother. Well, it got sold. Well, I've got a similar, that's <laughs> very similar to my story. I think my year 12 painting that I loved, I was storing in my mum's garage like in Ringwood or whatever. And I went back recently and said, Mum, can I, where do you have all those old works? You know, because they're kind of like, I stored them because mm. they're important. Oh, no, I sold them. I put them out on the um, nature strip and sold it for 50 bucks. And I was like, what? She said, yeah, some guy said it was really good. <laughs> well, my, okay. my painting, I think it went for like $45 or something and I was, I was like devastated but then I was really happy and I, was, I said, yeah. where's this painting? And I described it and they said, oh, no, lady, a lady um, out in a farm bought it. She really liked it. And I went, oh, that's amazing. Oh, that's, that's great. So and then I went, no, but where is it? It's gone. <laughs> So they didn't give me the money, guys. Track it down. Mm. Oh, it's. I mean, that kind of stuff of like those stories of sort of, yeah, like resilience and change and stuff, I guess it's trauma at the time, mm. like in a, mm. in a real way. But I love the way that you have turned it into kind of humour. Like I can, can laugh about it now. Yeah. It was devastating at the time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I wrote a story about it and, you know how La Mama burnt down recently? Yeah, really sad. so sad. Um, I actually read that story. That was the first time I ever did a public reading and it was at La Mama. Oh, wow. On one of their nights. So, oh, that would have been great yeah, to see. Yeah, I read, I read the garbage bag diaries out then. So have mm. you ever thought about doing, um, you know, like the moth or going have – you, have you heard about the moth mm. podcast? Yeah. Because <clears throat> – those kind of story, like obviously you're a storyteller, mm. but do you ever like explicitly go and apart from that time at La Mama, do you do that regularly? Like tell uh, stories on stage or I, a little bit. I've done some stuff uh, with the Lifted Brow because oh, yeah. they've um, published a trilogy of mine. Mm-hmm. So that was a couple of years ago, and then they put it in their anthology, their best of great. volume two, which is great. I have to find that. Yeah, and then I've done a few readings from that at the Emerging Writers Festival mm. and uh, an event called Amazing Babe. So I do a little bit oh, yeah. of, yeah, I do some creative nonfiction, so I read. Mm. Um, I wanted to quickly touch on just uh, last week was NAIDOC week. Mm-hmm. Was it the week before? Last week. Yeah, both. It went for two weeks. Right. Well, there you go, last two weeks. <laughs> um, and I really was super into the theme this year of mm-hmm. um, because of her we can um, and I guess, you know, like, so up your alley as well and you obviously spokesperson as well but can you talk a little bit about that sort of sway towards really recognizing that matriarchal importance and mm-hmm. and and even just NAIDOC week and how important you know what it does for, yeah. for you guys well I mean NAIDOC's really important for you know people that don't know it's National Aboriginal Islander Day Observance Committee which sounds like a strange title because it kind of is because NAIDOC week as it is now and sometimes it goes over two weeks Mm. because there's the local state week and then there's the national week which Mm. happens a week after it originated yeah it originated on um invasion day uh jan 26 1938 Mm -hmm. and so a group of aboriginal activists and leaders and elders gathered in sydney Mm. in elizabeth street sydney and to protest the um and talk about the mourning of aboriginal people so they're Mm. actually calling january 26th um, morning day. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I've seen amazing photographs of yeah, that. Yeah, so those yeah. photographs are very iconic yeah. and they were responding to Australia Day being celebrated. Mm. Right, way back by then. By the colony, yeah, so it was yeah. like 150th or whatever uh, it was at the time. How is um, it still How is it still happening? That's yeah. yeah, and so they were saying, look, we need to mourn our people and we need to acknowledge the losses, not celebrate a nation that is still um, degrading the rights of Aboriginal people. Mm. You know, So this is some of the earliest... Civil rights, human rights, activism, activism in Australia, yeah. so yeah. 1938. Yeah. 
And recently, because of my auntie telling me a story, um, Annie Cecily Atkinson, um, she let me know that my great-great-grandmother, mm. um, Papa Mariah Day, she actually travelled to that day of mourning by herself from wow. Munichala Mission past Anelequin. So that's to Sydney, that's a 1,500-kilometre round trip. Yeah. That she did by herself. Whoa. So a lot of the women... Uh, that someone did a recent thing that one of those iconic photographs of Mr. Ferguson and and William Cooper and some of the other gentlemen yeah. um, who uh, called that meeting on that day and called for only Aboriginal people to attend yeah. um, and to get some forward momentum mm. for our rights. A lot of the men can be are named, but the women aren't named, mm. and a lot of people can't name the women in the photograph. Is that why is that? I think it's just, uh, again, you know, mentioned before, I think that history favours men and, mm. and the patriarchy. Oh, it's not because they can't for respectful reasons. It's because they don't know who they are. Yeah, no, they're named. Like, oh. they're, you know, yeah. um, there's a couple of children in the photograph, but there was a woman there called uh, Louisa Ingram. Yeah. And um, but, but in general people can't. Oh, as recognize as like them, but they'll faces, look, icons, yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah. you know, William Cooper's face is you know iconic, and he's got this beautiful big white moustache. He's yeah. readily you know, yeah, or William Barrack or any of the yeah, yeah, the guys. That's right, but yeah. they can't do the same. You know, if I was to show photographs of Annie Marge Tucker's face, most yeah. people wouldn't know, no. but they might name William Cooper. Yeah. And this is just you know people who are aware. Yeah, not yeah. even mainst- the yeah. rest of Australia. We're talking about people who are aware of Aboriginal history mm. and rights. So that that morning day formed what is now known as Daydoc. Mm-hmm. So that that group of people over the, over the years that became a committee, and yeah. so it shifted from the very first morning wow. day into s- celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country mm. for surviving. Yeah, and so what happens though is a lot of us feel that it's a bit of a double edged sword because yeah. it's like we're celebrating our community's achievements. Um, how wonderful our community is and how much we do and bringing that to the fore and inviting non-Indigenous Australia in to celebrate with us. Yeah. But at the same time still saying that, you know, the struggle's still on. It doesn't stop for those two weeks. Yeah. It just sort of gives you a bit of respite from the struggle yeah. and a chance to gather and enjoy each other's company. And energy. Yeah. As opposed to attending mm. funerals and rallies and so on. Mm. So that's the origins of NADOC. Yeah, and this year's theme that was announced by the National NAIDOC Committee was Because of Her We Can, mm. which was amazing. But, again, for me it's sort of, you know, you still want our women to be acknowledged year-round. Of course. And I think sometimes it, beca- it becomes easy to say that we're the backbone of the community and we are in so many ways and there's an amazing Bart Willoughby song where he talks about Aboriginal woman. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the that's a beautiful song. Yeah. It's beautiful but it is, it's also that that backbone is bent and it's exhausted and it carries too much. Mm-hmm. So it's remembering that as well. Mm. So it, it's just the duality of, you know, remembering the burden that's on us. Mm and how much we carry. So it was fabulous to be celebrated and to acknowledge our women, but there's still a lot of too many men speaking on our behalf and having, you know, roles where they shouldn't have when they should have stepped back. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's what's always present. And then just in the last couple of days, you know, an Aboriginal woman made made us all aware that Trevor Noah, you know, famous black man, had um, made this really derogatory um, joke about Aboriginal women being ugly about five years ago. Really? Yeah, and the video surfaced and she tweeted a couple of days ago and said, oh, this is really disappointing. I used to love this guy. I can't believe he's done this. Is he- uh, he's a comedian. And what he, kind of thing is that to say yeah. anyway? Look, he often speaks on colonisation and, and we thought that his politics were pretty woke, but um, yeah, yeah it's not devastating. <laughs> so we sort of went into a spin and said, oh, here we are, we've just celebrated yeah. 
our beauty and and our, our resilience and then now we're having to speak back to this. And so there's a lot of Aboriginal women on Twitter who mm. I follow and they're fantastic who are having to fight trolls who were saying, I'll oh, get over it, it's just a joke. He's a comedian. Um, why don't you see the humour in this? But this is, of course, men, a lot of white men saying, you black women just aren't getting the joke, you know. <laughs> yeah, so for me, you know, upholding our matriarchy, yeah. talking about Aboriginal women's strength and mm. beauty and intelligence is super important because Australia really, mm. um, you know, derides the Aboriginal woman as ugly and Who's slutty. that incredible supermodel, though, the young woman from, I've forgotten her oh, name. Oh, Samantha from, Harris. Yeah, from, mm. from Darwin, isn't she? She's I don't from, know where she's from, actually. I think she's, she's from up north somewhere. Yeah, there's also a Magnolia, I don't know her surname, but she's a Yongu woman. Um, yeah, absolutely stunning. Yeah. Um, I mean, Aboriginal women are absolutely beautiful, yeah. but we're depicted as mm. um, hideous. And um, Liz Connor, who's a white woman, wrote this really great book called um, Skin Deep, and it's mm. about the colonial depictions of Aboriginal women. So mm. it goes right back to the beginning of the colony in the very first colonial magazine, Drawings or- uh, newspapers yeah. and cartoons that would depict Aboriginal women as stupid, as slaves, as broken down, as sluts as um, hideous. Mm. Except then in some depictions like, you know, Kate Granville's The Secret River, Mm -hmm. the one thing I took from that, I mean, you've got to take all of that with a grain of salt, obviously, Mm. but was just the the way that she depicted Aboriginal women was really amazing Mm. in that like that sub story was that actually they got it and the white women and Aboriginal women had a whole communication going on and were trading and were like meeting and Mm -hmm. uh, but then that was completely broken by, you know, mm. by their partners on both sides, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, look, I, I didn't read. I, I, from some impressions I had, of, you know, I, I just really want to hear um, our depictions yeah, of ourselves. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's both, both are important. It's mm. like that, that history being recounted by women on both sides would be better than than what we've by, got by, by men. men. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and men constantly depicting us through their gaze, you know, through yeah. a male or colonial gaze of, you know, whether we're worthy, yeah. you know, sexually. But Yeah, well, that's it. And, mm. I mean, I think there's that fear. I just recently watched um, Sweet Country. Mm-hmm. The It's a new film and in, just incredible in the way that it depicted, yeah, like that abuse of of. Indigenous women by white colonial men, yeah. you know. And like it continues. Like yeah. in um, Victoria there was a recent study and it's some, somewhere around 79% of Victorian Aboriginal women mm. are actually with non-Aboriginal partners yeah. and yet we um, we go through 34 times the amount of um, domestic violence than non-Aboriginal women do and we're 11 times more likely to end up in hospital or murdered and uh, so it really speaks back to a lot of the mythology that it's Aboriginal men doing this to us. Mm, mm. Um, so it's actually a male violence problem. It's not an Aboriginal problem. No, it's a colonial it's, violence problem yeah, in this country. Yeah, so much violence in this country mm. and still going on and, and hidden and yeah. not, not addressed properly. Yeah, and that's Toxic why. masculinity. That's right. And mm. that that's why, you know, I, I think that a matriarchal future is a safer one for everyone. I I tend to agree there, but, Mm. I mean, and it's not like men can't help with that. 
either. They can also help in that mm. putting that in place and recognising that. And I think there are a lot of men trying to do that, but I think a lot more needs mm. to be done. Yeah, they men need to submit to matriarchal power. Totally, and and actually <laughs> help enable that. Yeah, you know, they and just not need take, to submit, and also not take offence, <laughs> like not take mm. it personally. Yeah, because like we haven't been, we haven't taken it personally for, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you know, thousands of generations. <laughs> um, but I guess one of that on that, like I think that what's happening at ACA is really interesting, mm-hmm. you know, Hannah's new role, but also you curating um, sovereignty last mm-hmm. year and, you know, man runs ACA and mm-hmm. he's ma- managed to actually sort of hand over some power and <laughs> quite effectively. Yeah. Shout out to Max. Yep. But can you speak a little bit about how that exhibition of sovereignty, mm-hmm. you know, has solidified or what, what opportunity that gave to you or what, what that mm-hmm. meant to you? Um, yeah, curating sovereignty um, with Max there was... Yeah, I mean, it was a really significant opportunity and um, and I really thank to um, Jacob Boehm and Destiny Deacon and Virginia Fraser for um, really, uh, I think they backed me up and recommended me to Max and they also supported me throughout. Mm. And, you know, my relationship with Destiny is really important because she was one of my first tutors at Melbourne Uni back in 93. She's pretty amazing. Yeah, which mm. was incredible and she's an incredible artist and influence. Um so it was an, it was a really significant opportunity for me as a curator mm. um, and community artist, but um, much more for my community. Like I felt that it was such a significant opportunity to platform the work of mm. Victorian Aboriginal artists it was predominantly. Such a great show. Yeah, mm. it was. I'm so proud of it. And when there's also Aboriginal people from other parts of Australia who live in Melbourne that were in the show, yeah. and that's part, important because it reflects our community that it's diverse. Mm. But I really wanted to make sure that Victorian Aboriginal culture through those works was really platformed yep. and respected. You know, and it was good I didn't have to push too hard on Max to say that I wanted the, you know, majority of artists to be female mm. and uh, to have a matriarchal space in the gallery. And it was that was exciting for me because it was a way of sort of um, highlighting the matriarchal work that had always been a part of my practice mm. to that point. Bringing it into the current context, like yeah. the light lineage. Yeah. yeah, and also to demonstrate that you can have a female-defined space in a gallery that, um, was a you know a deep listening place, mm. um, and Dadiri is a deep listening methodology that Miriam Rose Ungermere writes about, mm-hmm. and I wanted that to be a deep listening place to women's experiences mm. and voices. So, I, yeah. I love that room that Marie Clark's work was in. That sort of dark room. Yeah, that's the, it. Yeah, that, that was that so was, beautiful. Uh, yeah, and I selected this um, blood red color for mm. the walls, and it. I wanted it to highlight the um, ongoing sacrifices that Aboriginal women make, and the, the spilling of our blood, um, our blood in the in the land, um, and also just the sacred sacredness of Aboriginal women's um, bodies and knowledge. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh. On that note, because you know it's just so beautiful. If anyone hasn't seen that show, you can probably look up documentation. Yeah. Online on the ACA website. Yeah, and- ACA's got a. a- Large number of the works are on the website mm. um, and the catalogue is free and downloadable. There you go. Yeah. Do it. Mm. Um, I think we've reached time mm-hmm. but I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you and I just wanted to say thank you because I know you're a really busy person. So thanks for coming thank and joining you. us. Thanks so much. How great is it when Paola talks about beyond saying it? Just getting on with it, doing it, and making it count. Who cares if you sing and dance? I love the way she consciously positions herself in the long line of Indigenous autobiographical voices, from Benelong to Ani Maj Tucker. 
like she fits right in there as the obvious contemporary link. So tough, so cool and so funny. How she embodies the awesome archetype of Mukmuk, the independent wild woman who chops up men and wears beautiful weeds in her hair, surviving rapidly gentrifying Footscray in the 2000s. Paola's fierce passion for matriarchal power and the legacy of her ancestors is so important and so inspiring. Talking to Paola, I got a real sense of speaking to a future elder, someone who is incredibly important to this place and the future and knowledge of its people. This conversation was hosted by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. I'm actually making a series of artworks inspired by each of these conversations. If you're interested, the first iteration is showing now at Sarah Scout Presents in Collins Street, Melbourne, and running until the 10th of November 2018. After that, the documentation will live on my website. For more information about the project and the artists I'm speaking to, head to tysnaith.com. Thanks to my audio producer, Beck Fari, and Melbourne musician, Fia, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use this track, End of the Day, from her album, The Ocean of Everything. This podcast was originally conceived as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. This second season, and the exhibition, is supported by the Australia Council for the Arts.